Hi everyone. I'm glad that we can be together in this way on the third Sunday in Advent, a very different Advent, and yet I believe a very important time in our lives. I heard about a little girl who watched her parents all the way through December. She watched them frantically doing their shopping and getting upset at the long queues. She watched them wrapping presents and then panicking when they'd forgotten one. She watched her mom labouring over a hot stove day in and day out, trying to get all of the food ready. She watched as her parents snapped at each other and at her. And after several days of this, one night as she knelt beside her bed to say her prayers, she was overheard praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Please forgive us our Christmases, as we forgive those who Christmas against us. A.W. Tozer once said, Christ came to bring peace, and we celebrate his coming by making peace impossible for six weeks of each year. Fortunately, or unfortunately, I guess, Christmas is a little more subdued this year which does in fact give us a great opportunity to focus on its true meaning and how the message of Christmas applies to our own hearts and lives. Last time we had a look at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, and today I'd like to continue on in Matthew's Gospel to the more familiar events for us. We're going to have a look at verses 18 to 25. Matthew writes, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word. The word that I want to pick up on in this passage is found in verse 19. It's the little word, disgrace. It's not a word that we often associate with Christmas, but it's right there in the middle of this Christmas story. And today I want to speak about the disgrace of Christmas. I think that there are three disgraces that we need to consider today. 
Firstly, I want to speak about the disgrace that Joseph bore that first Christmas. I don't think that Joseph gets enough press at Christmas. Maybe it's because he doesn't play a very big role in the Christmas story. Maybe it's because he's the groom in the story. If you look in CNA or in exclusive books, you will find plenty of magazines devoted to brides. You've seen them. Bride magazine, Modern Bride, The Bride Library, The Bride Wedding Planner. Have you ever seen a magazine called Modern Groom? There are no magazines devoted to the groom. The groom is just an accessory. It's a bit like a broom cupboard in an art gallery. It's necessary, but no one's going to visit the gallery just to see it. No one ever comes away from a wedding and says, Wow, didn't the groom look radiant? That never happens. And maybe that's why Joseph doesn't get so much space at Christmas time. But actually, the Bible itself doesn't place much emphasis on Joseph, at least not in terms of words. Did you know that Joseph doesn't even get a speaking part in the Bible? He doesn't say a word. Mary gets to say a lot. There's her famous response to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Mary also gets a whole song, the Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Later on, when Jesus is twelve years old and his parents have lost him, and after three days find him at the temple, it is Mary who confronts him. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And years later, when Jesus is 30 years old and about to start his ministry, it is Mary who pushes him to perform his first miracle, changing water into wine. And yet through all of this, Joseph is silent. The Bible doesn't record a single one of his words. It also seems that Joseph may have died young, and we deduce this from the fact that he's not mentioned again in the New Testament after the birth narratives. We read about Mary being at the cross and later being a member of the early church, but we never hear of Joseph again. And so it seems that Joseph dies quite early on in Jesus's life. Joseph fulfills his role here at the first Christmas and then simply fades into history. But what a role it was that Joseph did play. And we read about it here in these verses. Matthew tells us three things about Joseph in this passage. Firstly, Matthew tells us that he was blameless. Verse 19, he was a righteous man. Now, that term, a righteous man, was almost a technical term in those days. It meant that Joseph was devoted to God and devoted to God's law, the Torah. Not everyone in those days was. Joseph was what modern Jewish people would call an observant Jew. He obeyed all of the law. What God's law said, Joseph did. That meant that he didn't eat unclean food. 
He didn't mix with the wrong kind of people. He didn't keep the carpentry shop open on the Sabbath. He would have been at the synagogue. Joseph was a righteous man with a wholehearted commitment to God's word. Not only is he blameless, but Matthew tells us, secondly, that Joseph is betrothed. And the words that Matthew uses here, pledged to be married, mean betrothed. Now, in this context, betrothed means a lot more than an old-fashioned word for engaged. This was a legal status. In those days, Jewish marriages consisted of three steps. The first step was engagement, but that simply meant that the two sets of parents got together and negotiated an arranged marriage. After that, there was this formal betrothal, what we read about here. This was done with the parents and the couple themselves. It was a binding obligation. During the period of betrothal, the man was called by the title husband. Uh, You can see that in this passage in verses 18 and 19. Matthew tells us that this was before they came together, but he still refers to Joseph as her husband. If a man died during his betrothal period, the woman was considered to be a widow and was treated as such. A betrothal could only be broken by a formal divorce. Basically, a betrothed couple were married in all ways but two. They didn't stay in the same house and they didn't sleep together. That had to wait until the third step, the actual marriage. The husband would go to his wife's parents' house with all of his friends and they would bring her with much ceremony and celebrating back to his house. And that night, the marriage would be consummated. Which brings us to the third thing that Matthew tells us about Joseph. Not only is he blameless, not only is he betrothed, but thirdly, he was bewildered, to say the least. Because the problem is that he is betrothed, but his fiancée is found to be with child. Let's just pause there for a moment and ask the question, what would you feel like? if you were in that position. Joseph had completed Standard 8 biology. He knew how babies were made, and he also knew that he wasn't involved. I think he must have felt devastated. Here he was. He thought that he knew this young woman, and now it turns out that he had been wrong. She had been fooling around behind his back. Not only that, but alarmingly, Mary tells him that actually she hasn't been sleeping around. An angel has appeared to her and told her that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph must have seriously questioned Mary's sanity at this point. And Joseph is in a real dilemma. He is a righteous man, devoted to God's law, and he knew quite well what the law had to say about this particular case. The law was crystal clear. Deuteronomy chapter 22. This is speaking about a young woman who is betrothed. If it can be found that at the time of marriage she is not a virgin, here is the penalty. 
She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. Joseph knew this. He was a righteous man. Legally, he was in the right. But Joseph was not righteous in the way in which many people in our world are righteous. He was not self-righteous. He was also compassionate. And so we can sense this struggle within Joseph. Matthew tells us about it in verse 19. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, but he did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. And so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In other words, Joseph will not make a big scene and allow Mary to be a public spectacle. Instead, he will divorce her quietly, a process that only needed two witnesses. Matthew doesn't tell us how many nights Joseph tossed and turned going through all the various scenarios in his head before finally he came to his decision. But Matthew does tell us in verse 20 that after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. There's one word that strikes me in what the angel said, and that is the word afraid. You see it in verse 20? Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why would Joseph be afraid? Well, maybe a couple of reasons. Perhaps Joseph, as a righteous man, as someone who was committed to God's law, was afraid to break God's law and to take as his wife a woman who had been unfaithful. But also, perhaps Joseph was afraid of losing his status as a righteous man. And that is what would have happened. If Joseph took Mary as his wife, then never again would he be regarded as a righteous man. Never again would his opinion be sought in the synagogue. Never again would he be the one asked to say a blessing over the food at community events. Never again would he be invited to the chief rabbi's home for dinner. He would lose his status as a righteous man. Some people might think that Joseph and Mary had broken their betrothal vows and slept together before marriage, but many would believe that Mary had been unfaithful. And yet we read that Joseph overcame his fear and he took on the disgrace of that first Christmas. Matthew tells us that when he woke up, Joseph did two things. Firstly, verse 24 he took Mary home as his wife. That was a legal action. In other words, he took the final step in the marriage proceedings and took Mary back to his house as his wife. Although, as Matthew goes on to say in verse 25, he had no union with her. And secondly, we read in verse 25, And Joseph gave him the child, the name Jesus. This again is a legal action. Joseph names the baby. In other words, he claims this child as his own. 
Joseph takes Mary's disgrace and places it upon himself, the disgrace of an unmarried mother and the disgrace of a child who was not his own. But there is a second disgrace that Matthew speaks about in this passage too, and that is the disgrace that Jesus himself bore. Small rural towns are not particularly kind to young boys with questionable parentage, and there's a hint of this later on in the Gospels. So, for example, in Mark chapter 6, we read how Jesus, as an adult, goes back to his hometown and preaches in the synagogue. And there's great debate about his teaching. Some people are amazed at his teaching, but others say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And they took offense at him. Now, that little phrase, Mary's son, is very interesting No male in Israel would normally have been spoken of in this way. A man was always referred to in terms of his father. Normally, Jesus would have been known as Jesus ben Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph. To call Jesus Mary's son was to question his parentage. It implied that he wasn't really Joseph's son. It was a slur on his mother. To call Jesus Mary's son was the equivalent of our calling someone a son of a you-know-what. And it seems to me that Jesus bore this disgrace. And not just this disgrace, but many other disgraces too. The very incarnation itself was a disgrace. Have you ever thought about how much it cost God the Son who existed from all eternity, God the Son, through whom the entire universe came into being, how much it cost him to become human. It would be the equivalent of you or me becoming a sea slug. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He says that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. All of God's fullness coming down, 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 becoming smaller and smaller until God becomes the size of an ovum. God is great is a cry that every Muslim uses at least once a day. That God is tiny is something that that first Christmas teaches us. As one writer puts it, it's like the managing director becoming the tea lady. It's like Beethoven queuing up for one of his own concerts. It's like the headmaster getting detention. It's like Picasso painting by numbers. Jesus as God took on that disgrace. And while he was on earth, again and again, Jesus took on our disgrace. Can you see him queuing up in a long line of sinners, waiting to be baptized by his cousin John? Not because he himself had any sin, but because he came as our representative and took my place in that queue. He identified with me. 
Jesus felt the disgrace of rejection. Yes, there were crowds who followed him, but Jesus knew that many of them were there just to see the miracles. They were there because they wanted to be part of a political revolution. They were there for the free meal. When he laid down his commands and standards for living in the kingdom of God, there were many who turned away from him. The Apostle John tells us in the prologue of his gospel that he came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. Many hundreds of years before Jesus even came, the prophet Isaiah would predict this about him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. One of the reasons that the powerful and influential people rejected Jesus was because of who he hung around with. That, too, was a disgrace. Just think about Jesus' ministry when he was here on earth. He never despised or disowned anyone. In fact, the very opposite. He went out of his way to honour those whom the world dishonoured and to accept those whom the world rejected. And so we see him speaking with women who were regarded as second-rate citizens by men. We see him accepting children, speaking to Samaritans and Gentiles. He allowed those with leprosy to approach him and those who were unclean to touch him. He allowed a prostitute to cry on his feet, to wipe his feet with her hair and to anoint his feet with perfume. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus and the ones he made holy have the same father. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Not ashamed. He bore that disgrace. But there is a far, far greater disgrace that Matthew speaks about in these verses. Did you notice it in verse 21? The angel comes to Joseph and says, You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And how did Jesus save us from our sins? Did he stand at a distance and wave his hand and say a few words and we were forgiven? No. Isaiah, in that prophecy that I mentioned a moment ago, predicts what would happen. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus took my disgrace, and he took yours. All my sin, my arrogance, my pride, the ways in which I have hurt others, the secret things that I have done that I don't want anyone else to know about, all the shame and the blame and the punishment that I deserve, Jesus took it on himself. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Let me just pause there for a moment and ask, do you know this in your own life? Not do you know this intellectually, but do you know this personally, through experience? Have you received Jesus' free forgiveness? And if not, what's preventing you from doing that even today? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in the book of 2 Corinthians. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, we have the disgrace of Joseph in this passage and the disgrace of Jesus in this passage. But there's a third disgrace that I'd like to speak about today too. And that is the disgrace of following Jesus. Did you know that there was such a thing? Many churches focus on the victory and the authority that there is to be had in following Jesus. But fundamentally, there is a cost in following Jesus. Listen to these words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We don't have time today to unpack this passage in detail, but I think that Jesus is saying that in this life we have two choices. We can either be ashamed of Jesus and his words in this life and have him be ashamed of us when he returns, or we can bear the shame of following him now and receive his approval when he returns. But either way, we're going to bear shame. Either we bear shame now or we bear shame when he returns. What might bearing the disgrace of following Jesus look like in our everyday lives? Well, for some, it might mean being teased or insulted or sidelined by friends or family because we love Jesus. Hopefully that's due to the offence of the gospel and not because we are offensive. But for some, that might happen. For all of us, though, it would involve the disgrace of denying ourselves and what comes naturally to us and seeking what Jesus would do in our place. There's a certain amount of disgrace in that. It might be the disgrace of forgiving someone who has hurt us. It might be the disgrace of doing the right thing, even though everything within us rebels and wants to do the opposite. It might be the disgrace of giving up our time our energy, our finances, our possessions. It would include the disgrace of love, the same love that Joseph showed to Mary in loving and protecting her as his wife, despite her condition, the same love that Jesus showed to prostitutes and sinners. That disgrace of love needs to characterize my own life. The difficult people in our lives 
people who take up extra time and energy and resources, our love for God is really only seen in how much we love those folk. Truly seeking to follow Jesus costs us. It costs us our very lives. And as we become more and more like him, we sometimes discover that we too are misunderstood and sidelined and rejected as he was. The disgrace of following Jesus. As we close, let me just come back to the character of Joseph. Do you remember that the angel tells Joseph what he is to name the child? You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In those days, it was a father's absolute right to name his child. Ordinarily, it would have been up to Joseph to name this baby. But Joseph has to give up his right to self-determination. As one writer puts it, By refusing to let Joseph name the baby, the angel is saying in effect, If Jesus is in your life, you are not his manager. The child who is about to be born is your manager. Sometimes people say, well, I'm interested in being a Christian. I'd like to be a Christian, but I'm not prepared to do this or that, or I'm not prepared to give up this or that. And when they say that, what they are really doing is trying to name the baby. They're trying to take control of him. But when we truly come to Jesus, we have to drop our conditions. We have to take him on his terms and not on our own terms. And part of that involves bearing disgrace. It was something that Joseph did, and it was something that Jesus did for us, carrying our sin, bearing our shame. Are we then prepared to give our lives back to him and in that way truly keep our lives? May God grant us the courage and the grace to do that in the week that lies ahead. Amen.